0: Log Talk Radio.
1: And good evening everybody and thank you for choosing King Jordan Radio here tonight for Thursday, December 18th. 2014, and tonight we're going to go over the year in review of 2014. Tonight, we're joined with two special guests. Let me introduce them one by one. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, out of Florida, she is a world-renowned body language expert. She's also a jury consultant. Ladies and gentlemen, you can reach her at com, and she joins us now. Good evening, Susan, and welcome back to King Jordan Radio. How are you?
2: Hi, King. How are you doing tonight?
1: Awesome, awesome. Okay, let me introduce a guest, number two. He is out of Arizona. He is a legal defense attorney, a legal analyst. You see him on HLN. And tomorrow you'll see him on Dateline on the NBC network. A big welcome to the one and only Dwayne Kate. Good evening, Dwayne. How are you? Welcome back.
3: Good, King, King Jordan. How are you? Thanks Thanks for having me on. Yes.
1: Well, indeed, we had a, a big year uh, in the year 2014 um, between Oscar Pistorius, uh, but the, uh, the, the fifth, there's a lot of sad deaths And what uh, I want to start out with Is uh, Miss um, Joan Rivers And uh, let me play this clip for
4: the audience And then we'll talk about Joan on the other I side I think
5: Kat is one of the chicest women in Hollywood There's no yeah. question about that But she's too old for this dress yeah.
4: A harsh critic of celebrity style Always unfiltered Always full of snark the comedian Joan Rivers has died. She was 81 years old. A long-running career took her from late-night TV to Hollywood, interviewing celebrities and eliciting laughs. So
6: like you know, before I got with Jada, I got to check out her mom. You know. Oh, I got I, she
4: was say, I, was, I was. with her mom. A celebrity herself, Rivers had insults ready for everyone, exposing even her own decisions, like repeated plastic surgeries, to laughs. And I was recommend
5: doing a little
4: at a time
5: a little bit at a time Uh, otherwise you can look like you've been through a wind tunnel or uh, robert redford looks like he's in the witness protection program
4: rivers was born in 1933 in brooklyn new york she shelved her birth name joan alexandra molinsky for the stage name joan rivers but kept her now famous new york city accent then in 1965 she landed her big break appearing on the tonight show starring johnny carson By 1983, she was named permanent guest host for Carson, a milestone in the male-dominated world of late-night television. A few years later, she jumped ship to the Fox network, launching The Late Night Show with Joan Rivers, her husband, Edgar Rosenberg, the producer. It lasted only one season. Her husband, later committing suicide, the show's failure, Rivers said, a major factor. Following her husband's death, it took Rivers years to get her career going again, but when she did, she rarely stopped. Rivers reflected
5: on her work. Now the stage is a persona, and the stage I feel I'm every woman striking out, it's always been me from the very beginning, always fighting, you know, why are
4: you doing this to women? Why are you doing this? In recent years, her daughter Melissa joined her, appearing on the reality TV show Joan and Melissa, Joan Knows Best. The pair were inseparable.
5: George Clooney. Rivers,
4: a fixture during red carpet arrivals, and host of the E! Network show, The Fashion Police.
5: All right,
4: <laughs> never mind, screw it, we all know about that. Behind the rough exterior, though, Rivers once had this to say about her nonstop drive. That's fair.
5: If my book ever looked like this, it would mean that nobody wants me, that everything I ever tried to do in life didn't work. Nobody cared, and I've been totally forgotten. Yet that
4: calendar was always packed. Just days ago in New York, making her final appearance. Padmanandarama, the Associated Press.
1: Okay, Susan, I'll go to you first. Um, what are your thoughts of the iconic Joan Rivers and her passing?
2: Oh, well, I think it was terribly sad. And I think it was unexpected, of course. And uh, I think that the problem is, is that it was she just made a very quick decision to go to someone that wasn't really qualified. And um, you know, unfortunately, you know, through all of her years of cosmetic surgery and being under anesthesia, I'm sure that this really didn't help matters at all. So you know, it was very a very sad day. I mean, she's a wonderful, beautiful woman inside, and she's made she certainly has made me laugh a lot of times. So I'm certainly going to miss her and and, and watch her videos in the future.
1: Dwayne, do you think she went over the top uh, one too many times in some of the things she said, well, or she was just doing that to uh, get some big press?
3: You, you know, the truth is is that is that I really respect people that 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 will say what's on their mind, and, and you know, and, and they really don't have a filter. I mean, you know, there's a time to have a filter and there's a time not to have a filter. And I always thought she was appropriate, you know, you because know, she made just as much fun of herself as she made of everybody else. And she, uh, you know, she was a very funny woman. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I just respect her for saying what was on her mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Susan, she, she uh, like they said the, in the clip, um, she was performing all the way uh, up until her uh, 80s. And yeah. uh, you gotta give her, you
5: got
2: to give her credit. <clears throat> I agree. I mean, we have to give her a lot of credit for what she's done. I mean, she's an amazing lady. I mean, up in her 80s, I mean, she still was just as funny in her, in her 80s that she was in her 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, I think that's why everybody's really going to miss her a lot. And one of the things I wanted to speak to is um, what you just got done talking about, and um, you know she was very appropriate, and when she was speaking, even though she made fun of other people, she did make more fun of herself, and especially when it came to cosmetic surgery. I mean, she was always she would laugh about somebody else, but at the same time, she'd also put herself in the mix, which I thought was quite genuine and authentic.
1: Yes, yes, uh, but uh, there was uh, some deaths uh, overseas or something, and she made some comments that some people found uh, a little heartless. A little strong. What was your feelings on the strong, strong comments she made, or that was just Joan being Joan?
2: Yeah, yeah. Are you talking to me here, King? Yes, yes. Oh well, I, yeah. I mean, I, there's times where I thought that she was pretty harsh, but at the same time, it was it's one of those kind of things where you know we shouldn't laugh when people fall down and hit their head, or they we shouldn't fall we shouldn't <laughs> laugh at people when things happen to them. But, I mean, when, when she would say things that were seen to be so harsh, it was almost kind of shocking, and it just made you laugh. So was she overly cruel? But I, th- I think that she always recovered really well. So even though she may have made a really strong comment, I don't think it was ever made in hate or in spite. And I think it was really more in fun and, um, you know, just in jest, you know. So I I didn't find it offensive.
1: Absolutely. The next story I want to touch on is 61-year-old Robin Williams hangs himself. Uh, Dwayne, what were your thoughts when you heard that, about that story? Uh, just an iconic figure.
3: It was, and that that that's probably the one that affected me the most. I mean, I'm I'm 24 years sober in recovery, and I've faced a lot of those same demons, and you know, and and I've always looked Robin Williams because. There isn't anybody on this planet that was quicker than he was, that was wittier than he was, that could just make up the most bizarre stuff in the world off the top of his head. And, and you know, there were times like in the Mork and Mindy show where I, I would just—I was on the floor laughing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and, and a lot of times that that genius comes out of pain. You know, and a lot of times there's mm-hmm. a there's a fine line between you know insanity and genius. And uh, mm-hmm. and he he walked that line all the time.
1: And Susan, your take
7: on um, on uh... I'm Robin Williams?
2: Well, it was shocking. Right. I don't think I didn't expect it. But at the same time, you know, when when you when you see Robin Williams, you know, and, <clears throat> and hearing about that, there was this other dark side to him where he internalized a lot of his thoughts and and why he did what he did is we still don't know. It's still a mystery because he never left a letter. You know, we really don't know. But he was fighting internally, and I knew that he was dealing with depression over years. And I think that he covers um, that depression with laughter. And um, under, and, and he's not the only, the only comedian like that. You know, and I sometimes wonder, you know, the people that are the most outwardly funny people, you know, what are they like when they're behind scenes? Because as a public speaker, I remember one gentleman in particular that was a Phenomenal presenter and man, he got everybody fired up, and he was funny and everything else. Off stage, I saw him in the corner, kind of willed up. I mean, you couldn't even approach him. He was he was insecure, he was fragile, and so I mean, when they're on, when they're in performance mode, they're a whole different person. But then they don't really show that that real person underneath. And, and you know, it's so sad to hear that he was really harboring all these feelings, and he chose to take his own life. I think it's quite sad.
1: Uh, Dwayne, do you look at this as an easy way out? Some people have said that uh, a couple months back he did have children, I believe. And uh, I don't know how do you look at this. I mean, she went to, to the hospital for help when you have these type of feelings. or just cut, taking away uh, his life, or we shouldn't judge because we're not in his mm-hmm. shoes. Well, or you, you, you look,
3: can never judge because because somebody without you can never judge somebody without being in their shoes, and. And I would never say it was killing yourself easy, you know. I mean, I don't think most people that kill themselves arrive at that at that decision lightly, you know. And, and uh, you know, and and I've always thought that suicide is a is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but but you know, there are just some people that just that just you know that that's just their way out, and and uh, and I think most people that that commit suicide do it because. They don't think there is any other way out. If, I think if they if they thought there was another way out that they would take it. But some people are just tired. They you know they they they've been fighting a demon or something for for their whole life and and some people just finally give up. Mhm. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes.
1: I, I don't uh, think
2: Go, go ahead. ahead
1: you go ahead, Janet.
2: Oh, okay. You know, um <laughs> I lost a brother-in-law to suicide who and then also to my pastor's Sorry. son, my pastor's son uh, committed suicide. And look at where Rick Warren's son committed suicide. You know, I mean, there, I mean, there's truly an epidemic out there with people that are just so so sad and they don't know how to deal with their own depression. But you know, suicide to them is not a death sentence, and that's the most important thing. To them, it's their way of healing and and relief away from their pain. And I don't think that it's a selfish thing because we're thinking about it with a, with a healthy mind. I can tell you firsthand from the people that I've known, and in in especially my brother-in-law, when and being very close to him, and, and when he did kill himself, there were signs. And, uh, you know, we have to listen to those signs. And I think so often that people that are close to them are think, like, oh, you know, they're just going through it, they'll get over it, they've been through it before. But I think that we this is a wake-up call for all of us to be aware of what those signals might be, pay attention and react, and get help for them immediately.
1: Yes, and uh, Dwayne, you feel the same way?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I absolutely do. You know, it's, uh, you know, a, a lot of times there are signs, but you know, I mean, you know, in, in my work, I deal with a lot of people in addiction, and I, I probably average burying two or three clients a year. And uh, yeah. half of those are probably to suicide, and and mm-hmm. and I I I don't see it coming. I mean, it's not like, I mean, if I see it coming, I mean, I I call family, friends, whatever. I you know, but but the, you know, it's just that you know they're in my office one day, and you know, three days later they're dead, and and I just have, mm-hmm. you know, no idea. I mean, I know that there, that there's a lot going on, but I don't you know, but I you know they they don't, you know, they don't just come out and tell you what they're up to.
1: Exactly. Um, just wanted to let my audience <clears> know that tomorrow you will be on Dateline, right at uh, eight p.m. Eastern Time on NBC Network.
3: That's correct. That yeah, correct Dateline NBC is doing a two-hour special on a on a murder case okay. that wow. I tried. Uh, yeah, it's a two-hour special. The the case aired before last January, and uh, since right. the uh, since that case aired, I I got the jury verdict thrown out by the judge. And Dateline's doing wow. a uh, doing doing a, a two hour special on it.
1: Yeah, because Dateline they mostly take people that are found guilty. I would say eighty percent, but that's interesting. Well, that you know
3: that's, that was- I I had that yeah I had that conversation with the Dateline producers when they first approached me and wanted to do my my show because I said you know my wife watches Dateline because I can't stand to watch it because it's like being at work, okay? <laughs> and but my wife loves the show. Okay, so you know, I end up watching it, and I said, you know, the guys always found guilty, and they said, well, not always, and you know, and and one of the most interesting things I learned is, because sometimes the attorneys look like idiots on Dateline. I mean, they just sometimes they do, and and so I when I met with Keith Morrison, I said, Keith, I said, I said one thing I'm worried about is, you know, sometimes you make the you make the lawyers look like idiots, and he looks at me like he does, you know, and, and he thinks for a second, he looks at me, he goes, Dwayne. And that just velvet <laughs> voice he has. He goes, Dwayne, he goes, he goes, I don't make them look like idiots. I let them look like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He's a wily writer. And, and I went, you know what? That's exactly the truth. You know, that's exactly <laughs> the truth. Cause, because, and you know, yeah. I mean, if you knew Dave, some of the some of the shows I watch, you know, there's a the lawyer sitting in his office and there's just crap everywhere, <laughs> boxes and, you know, Desks full of paper. I'm thinking, I'm going. Dateline's coming. Straighten up. You know. <laughs>
1: right, I mean, it's not right, like they surprise right.
3: you when they walk in your office. They like set an appointment.
8: So.
1: Right. So sometimes they actually go through the trial with the uh, before and after. One time, I even so, they they let the jury room be exposed, and that's so a no-no. Yeah. Uh, usually. Uh, so. Yeah.
3: They, they, fil- they filmed. They filmed the entire two-month trial, every minute of it. So. Wow. Very interesting. Mm. Deed.
1: Oh, okay, in March, another tragedy in the California area, Santa Barbara. Let's take a listen, and we'll talk on the Killer. Elliot oh,
9: Rogers' mass murder plot had come together over the course of the past year. All of it detailed in a chilling manifesto and disturbing video that he left behind. ABC's Clayton Sandell is at the apartment building where his deadly rampage began with the very latest. Good morning, Clayton.
8: Good morning, Lara. This morning, Elliot Rogers' parents, who are divorced, are not speaking publicly. But now we are learning that just moments before this all began, their son sent an ominous warning. Just minutes before Elliot Roger began his sinister attack, his mother knew something was wrong.
6: You forced me to suffer all my life, and now I'll make you all suffer.
8: Family friend Simon Astaire tells ABC News that Chin Roger had just taken a call from her son's therapist, telling her to check her email. Waiting in her inbox that one hundred thirty-seven page manifesto detailing Elliot's jealousy and hatred especially for women who he blamed for a life of loneliness, rejection, and misery. It was 917 PM, only thirteen minutes before the shooting started. Shin Roger then checked her son's YouTube page. What she found, Astaire says, confirming her worst fear. Well,
1: this is my last video. It all has to come to
8: this. A says Elliot's mother frantically called her ex-husband Peter Roger and later police. The two racing from Los Angeles to Isla Vista. Along the way, radio reports brought news of a shooting. When they reached the police station, officers confirmed the shooter was their son.
10: He was really, really upset about why is the world so unfair to him.
6: Girls gave their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. I'm 22 years old and I'm still a virgin.
8: We now know Roger's family contacted police only weeks earlier, concerned about his increasingly disturbing online rants. Sheriff's deputies went to his apartment. They determined that he did not meet the criteria for an involuntary mental health hold. They found no reason to take action. But Roger wrote that it would have been different if police had found his guns and his assault plan. If they had demanded to search my room, he wrote, that would have ended everything. Roger's manifesto describes a life of deprivation and unfairness. But his Facebook page tells a story of privilege, expensive cars, designer sunglasses, and private concerts with Katy Perry. His dad, an assistant director on The Hunger Games elliot even posted this picture on the red carpet images of a glamorous life that apparently masked a dark reality now because elliot roger was never institutionalized for mental illness it was perfectly legal for him to buy those three handguns along with hundreds of bullets David.
11: all right clayton our thanks to you this morning as well i want to bring in our chief legal affairs anchor dan abrams and Dan, it's always easy looking back with hindsight on these things Uh, but the call and the email from the therapist to the mom this was just minutes before these shootings began and a lot of people are going to wonder had the therapist only called police maybe something could have been done Yeah,
12: this is a very long manifesto with very little time and the laws do vary state to state there's no question that this therapist would have been allowed to call the police without worrying about the privilege the question is was it mandatory did this therapist have to call the police. It does seem under California law that a therapist can be required to call the authorities to warn, to protect, most importantly, if, if the victims are identifiable. And in this manifesto, it does seem that particular people were named, so an argument could be made that the psychologist was obligated to protect the victims in this case, but because it was such a long manifesto and so little time, it's going to be very fact specific.
11: We also know police called authorities before. The sheriff's deputies had gone to the home. And one thing written in the manifesto Dan, I know you're aware of this the police interrogated me outside for a few minutes. He goes on to write, If they had demanded to search my room, that would have ended everything. For a few horrible seconds, I thought it was all over. Then a biggest wave of relief. That's what he writes.
12: Yeah, but this wasn't a search warrant, right? I mean, they didn't have the right to just go in there. They were there for a welfare check to make sure that he was not a danger to himself or to others. The police made it pretty clear. That in talking to him, there was no real risk, at least that they could tell. So, very easy to second guess now. Tough to blame the police in retrospect. Without a search warrant, you can't go. Yeah. In. All right, Dan, thanks very much.
1: Okay, Susan, Constancy, let me go to you first. What's your thoughts on what Dan Abrams was saying? Uh, maybe they could have done more, maybe they couldn't. Uh, what's your feelings on this Olaf uh, case?
2: Well, it sounds like to me that it was, I don't know if that was DCF that came in to do the, uh, or what it was a police officer, whatever, came in to do a well check. You know, first of right. all, I trained, I trained DCF and police officers how to detect deception, and I can tell you they are 50% or best at knowing that and that's one of my passions is to to help educate these field workers that are out there to be able to detect when someone's being self-deceptive and, and, you know, walk away thinking, you know, this guy's probably pretty charismatic, he's very likable, and, you know, he schmoozed his way through it. But that's that's the thing that they're not picking up on because they don't know how to read those clues. But, um, you know, psychologists, even even psychologists themselves, psychologists, uh, federal officers, um, judges are all about fifty percent of being be able to read people, so you know, that doesn't surprise me at all. When I'm looking at him, and I and I watched that video several times, and I watched it months ago, you know there there's a, a couple things that I've noticed myself. First of all, anyone that uses a lot of the words I, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of self reflection, lot of a lot of emphasis on self. Anyone that is constantly like everybody's wounded me, everyone's against me, it's all about me. Those types of people, people should watch out for, the I, me, and my, especially in letters when they're constantly talking about themselves and how other people are hurting them. That is the number one indicator, shows a high level of uh, probability of suicide. You know, uh, it, it, and then, and also at the same time, honesty. When they're saying, I did this or I did that, it's, it's actually taking ownership. But when you mention about yourself so many times in a letter or manifesto, it actually shows that through research that those are signals of, of su- suicidal tendencies. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot that I could go over here that I saw in him. And and when he didn't get what he wanted, um, of course, and he acted out. So because of his level of rejection and hatred. And and here's the other thing. Watch out for people that use those angry words. He, he was just, he used lots of angry words. And angry words are also another signal, a type of person that tends to be more deceptive. So he he hid this for a long time, and he actually decided to put it on paper. I would love to have had that entire manifesto and analyze it to determine a lot of stuff about his personality, um, which, of course, was too late through statement analysis.
1: And uh, Dwayne, do you think there's anything that could have been stopped or anything that they could have done uh, to stop uh, Mr. Elliot Roger from doing what he did, saying that these girls and this and that and, you know, shooting all these people, couldn't there have been anything to stop that?
3: Well, you know, there may be. I mean, we could live in a society where they don't let you do anything. and, And, you know, you only do what the government says and they search your stuff all the time and you know, we live in a free society, and part of living in a free society is is risk. I mean, we live in a society where you can have guns, and so there's going to be a risk that people are going to, you know, get shot. I grew up in Wyoming, where everybody has a gun, and, you know, Mm -hmm. there aren't very many people shot, although I read today in a newspaper that a dog shot his owner, you know, in Wyoming, so that, you know, even the dogs carry (laughs) guns. Yeah, he jumped in the back seat, and yeah, the dog shot his owner. He jumped in the back seat, and Jumped on a rifle and it went off and shot the owner. <laughs> oh my, so, oh you know, my. Fun. so even the dogs carry guns in Wyoming. You know, but you know, there's very few shootings because everybody has guns. You don't take a gun out and start waving it around because you're going to get shot. You know, but you yeah. know, but we live in a society. We live in a society where where you can't lock people up because you think they might do something. You know, I mean, you know, you can't just because somebody's acting a little strange go search their apartment. You know, it would have been great to have the manifesto, you know, if he'd have published it, you know, weeks in advance, you know, we, maybe we could catch him. You know, there are warning signs, and there are things that people can watch for, and there are ways of detecting people, and and quite a few people are detected and stopped. But, you know, there's always going to be those people that, that that slip through the cracks, and, you know, and these mass shootings, I absolutely believe, you know, are, are – Somewhat manufactured by the press, you know, they're they're you know the the people that sh- that perpetuate the mass shootings become famous. So if a guy's going to kill himself, he says, "Hey, why not go out in a blaze of glory?"
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: everybody knows my name, and you know, and, and when I grew up, there were no school shootings, okay? But you know, but it, you know, uh, you know, after the Colorado, after the first one, you know, here they came, copycats, and there's tons mm-hmm. of them. You know, and if, and, 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 you know, but I mean, you, you can't not cover those in the news, but, but, you know, I mean, it, you know, people start to think that that's a good idea. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, they're, you know, they're catching more and more of them now by monitoring social media because these kids aren't very smart. I mean, they, they, they put stuff on social media about what's going on ahead of time, and, and a lot of them are getting stopped. Oh, yeah. Stopped. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, but the laws here in New York are much different in terms of the guns, like that football player, that uh, Cheryl himself. He got two years, sure. and uh, and he did the full two years. And I guess over there in Florida, like I, I hear, you can buy a gun at Walmart. Uh, Chris huh. Rock was saying <laughs> joking. Oh yeah, but, um, you can buy
3: one. You can buy one at Walmart here too. The the problem with that is is when when guns are outlawed, only outlaws have guns. You know, uh, and cops. I mean that's. Why, why do you think shooters go to schools, to, to campuses? They're gun-free zones. They can take their gun out and start shooting people with very little risk of getting shot. Why do you think that there aren't very many cases where somebody walks into a police station with a gun and starts shooting? Okay, Because everybody in there has guns. Okay, They're easy targets. These people look for soft targets. You know they're not going to go. They're not going to go to a National Rifle Association convention and start shooting. You know they're going to go where there uh, are no guns.
2: But what was that one case where that woman took her son to a shooting range and shot his yeah. son It was here in Florida.
3: Yeah. Well, and that happened. Yeah, but again, that, that wasn't I, I, a mass I, I, shooting. That was just a that was a sim- yeah. single shooting.
1: Yeah. You know they weren't going there to try to kill a
3: bunch of people. And well, I mean, we and there's, all also, there's all
1: kinds. Uh, the guy in uh, Colorado in that Batman movie, which will be going into Detroit yeah. in February, January. Uh, that shooter, uh, that was horrific, and uh, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. What's going it, it, on?
8: It is.
3: It it is. And you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, unfortunately, that those things are going to happen, and there's not much you can do about it.
1: Uh, no question about it. Okay, uh, in February, there was the loud music murder trial. Let's play a uh, clip from that, and then let's get your uh, take on
12: the other side. In a courtroom in Florida, a spectacle. Three hours of can't-look-away testimony from the man accused of murdering an apparently unarmed teenager over loud rap music in a car. Michael Dunn repeatedly tried to convince the jury that he acted in self-defense, while prosecutors repeatedly ripped into him... As a cold-blooded killer, this is a case that touches the two classic American hot buttons of race and guns. And ABC's Ryan Owens has this report for our series, Crime and Punishment.
11: I'm looking out the window, and I said, you're not going to kill me, you son of a bitch, and I shot.
13: In his own words and in riveting detail.
11: It it wasn't just my life I was worried about now.
13: Admitted killer Michael Dunn recreates for the jury the moments that led to the shooting death of 17-year-old Jordan Davis.
6: Do you notice any differences about your body physically?
11: I'm shaking, I mean, I'm quivering like a leaf.
13: Prosecutors call it cold-blooded murder. Dunn maintains it was self-defense. It started when Dunn and his fiance, Rhonda Rauer, pulled into a Jacksonville, Florida gas station in November 2012. They parked next to an SUV full of teens.
11: Body panels of the SUV were rattling. My rearview mirror was shaking. My eardrums were vibrating. Okay. I mean, this was ridiculously loud music.
13: Dunn's fiance testified the 47-year-old software developer had this reaction.
2: And what
9: did the defendant say? Oh, I hate that thug music.
13: Rower went inside the store to buy a bottle of wine. Seconds later, gunshots.
7: Oh my God! Somebody!
13: Dunn pulled his semi-automatic pistol out of the glove box and fired ten times. Today, he testified while she was in the store, he talked to the young
11: men in that SUV. I said, can you turn that down, please? They turned it off, and if the music wasn't off, at least the bass stopped completely.
6: Okay, and at that
11: point, what did you then say? I said, thank you.
13: Dunn says the pleasantries didn't last long. And with Jordan Davis's parents looking on, he told the jury the 17-year-old in the rear passenger seat started mouthing off.
11: I should kill that. I should kill that. Now he's screaming. Okay. There's no there's no mistake of what he said. That is what he said.
13: Today, Dunn tried to convince the jury Jordan Davis was a foul-mouthed shotgun-toting teen who actually pointed a gun at him.
6: You said it looked like a barrel of a gun or a shotgun?
11: It was a thick enough uh, profile. It was to my eye, a 12-gauge, maybe 20. When he says, yeah, I'm going to f- kill you, I look, and I'm looking at a barrel. He's, he's showing me a gun, and he's threatening me. But after he opened the door, then he looked at me and said, you're dead, f-.
6: At that point, what did you believe was about to happen to you?
11: I, I thought I was going to be killed.
13: That was only one of the buzzwords Dunn used to try to convince this jury the shooting was self-defense he seemed to hit them all.
11: I was still fighting for my life. I knew I had done nothing wrong. I have every right of self-defense and I took it.
13: But prosecutor John Guy would have none of
11: it. Jordan Davis was never a threat to you, was he, Mr. Dunn? Absolutely he was.
13: As soon as his cross-examination began, we were reminded why defense attorneys cringe when their clients take the stand.
14: I don't want to call it an act of desperation, but they really had no choice. Without his testimony, there was no evidence of self-defense. All you had was a man shooting nine times into a car with a bunch of teenagers. He would easily be convicted, so he had to get on the stand. He had to explain why he fled the scene and why he didn't call 911.
6: You were being disrespected by a mouthy teenager, weren't you?
14: No,
11: I was being threatened threatening to kill somebody isn't a disrespect that is just crazy
13: prosecutor guy reminded the jury no gun was found in the teens SUV and grilled Dunn on every inconsistency including the fact his own fiance said he never mentioned a gun the night this happened
6: you did not tell her during that three miles anyone pointed any weapon at you did you
11: I think I did I think I was very clear that they threatened my life.
6: My question was, did you tell her they had a weapon of any kind? Yes, I did. Mr. Dunn, the truth is, you never told the love of your life that those
11: boys had a gun. You weren't there.
6: All right, ma'am, if you'll come right around here.
13: Later, the prosecutors speech. called the fiancé back to the stand to hammer home the point.
2: When you came out of, the, out of the gate gas station and you got into the defendant's car, yes. did the defendant ever tell you he saw a gun in that red SUV. No. Back in the hotel room, Ms. Rauer, that same night, did the defendant ever tell you that he saw the boys with a firearm? No. Did he ever tell you that he saw the boys with a weapon?
13: No. Dunn claims his fiance got something else wrong, too. The, the last words she said she heard him say before the shooting.
9: Oh, I hate that thug music.
6: You don't recall saying I hate that thug music?
11: No, if I would have said anything, I would have called it rap crap. Thug music isn't a term I would use.
13: The prosecution spent a lot of time quizzing Dunn about his behavior after the shooting.
6: Mr. Dunn, the reason you left the gas station is because you knew you had shot into a car of four unarmed teenagers.
11: That's incorrect.
13: Dunn acknowledges he and Rauer fled the scene of the shooting and never called police. Instead, they returned to this hotel and ordered pizza and made some cocktails.
11: I didn't call the police until the following morning.
13: You called the pizza man? Dunn said he didn't realize anyone had been killed until late that night when he used his cell phone to search for information about the
11: shooting. I ran to the bathroom. I just, tell the jury why you ran to the bathroom. I, I vomited. Okay.
13: But he yeah. still didn't call police, and he instead drove home to Central Florida, where he was ultimately arrested.
11: It wasn't going to change it from self-defense to anything else.
13: Dunn was on the stand for more than three hours, and he was the defense's final witness.
3: Go ahead, Mr. Dunn. Um, All right, ladies and gentlemen, the defense has now arrested Derek...
13: By late tomorrow, the jury should begin deliberating his fate. Prosecutors want first-degree murder, but many observers think that's a stretch.
14: They've lost credibility by doing that. This is not a case of premeditated murder. He didn't know these kids ahead of time. He didn't go to the gas station in order to shoot them. Yes, right. They love to overcharge because it frightens defendants, it hurts them in trying to get out on bail, it sends a message to the public that this is really a vicious crime. But when they get to the trial, can they really prove it?
13: That will be up to twelve.
1: 12- well, uh, Roy wife turned out to be wrong, Dwayne. Uh, Kate, what was your take on this trial? And uh, let me put you in the position of being the defense attorney for uh, Mr. Dunn. What would you have done differently, if anything?
3: Well, I, I don't know what you could have done differently. I mean, you need a magic wand to win that case. You know, the right. only way you win that case is if there's testimony that the, that the kids had a gun. If they had found a gun on the kids or evidence of a gun or somebody that had seen them with a gun earlier or something that had to do with the gun, you have a chance of winning. But when you when you in order to have self-defense, the the force used has to be proportional, meaning, you know, if somebody threatens to punch you, you can't shoot them. OK, you know, mm-hmm. you can punch them back, but you can't shoot them in self-defense. You know, and, and he had to feel he was threat. His life was threatened. And if there was no gun, you know, they, those kids can can yell threats at him all he wants. And if there's no gun, he can't just shoot them for making threats and uh you know and and then his actions afterwards you know make it extremely difficult i mean you know most people that that act in self defense you know at some point call the police i mean i've tried a couple self defense cases and one of them and sometimes though the people are so scared you know that they that they shoot or stab or do whatever they do and then they run off because they're afraid the person's still going to come after them so you know it's one of those you know one of those deals, but that's an extremely difficult case to win.
1: And Susan, being the body language that you are, when you saw or heard uh, Mr. Dunn testify, what did you make of him being deceptive?
2: Well, he was being deceptive, but I think that his demeanor really spoke uh, more words. And I, I, you know, and I've worked several cases like this. I have one that I'm working on right now where it's a first-degree murder case. And, you know, I just know... That we are not putting this defendant on the stand, and I know that that's probably the only way to get an acquittal if possible to explain their the person's actions, but there are times where a a, a the demeanor of the defendant is so offensive and not sincere and believable, that he's going to just kill the case. And when when the jury is looking at, you know, just his voice, his tone of his voice and his facial expressions, he just comes across like a a cynical, pessimistic, judgmental asshole. That's how he comes across. And that's what the jury plain English. Oh, I can't say that (laughs) word. (laughs) No,
1: I said in plain
2: English. (laughs) You know, he's just not a a likable guy and i i don't think that the, the jury well the jury didn't blame because he was you know there's a lot of evidence stacked up against him but i wouldn't have put him on the stand
3: do you think Dwayne? yeah is but the, you know they the, they had to cuz they had they had no other evidence of self defense i mean that's I a case that. it's kind of like the kind of like the Jody Arias case you know self defense probably wasn't correct if they would have went for uh manslaughter or second degree murder heat of passion something like that, they, they probably would have won, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. the same thing if they'd have done something where they provoked a fight and it was, it wasn't premeditated and it was a heat of passion, you know, they may have, they may have got a second degree verdict out of it.
2: Yeah. You know, but sometimes, you know,
3: sometimes they go all or nothing and, you know, and it's, it's risky.
2: Right. And you know what, don't, don't you believe too, it really has a lot to do with, you know, witness preparation. I mean, it's just, I don't know about you, but you know, I I've worked with my clients a lot because I want to see their, how they're responding. And you know, there's a really cool program that's coming out. I can't talk about it right now, but it's 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 analyzing what people's impressions are of both the state or the defense if they're very likable, and also to the witness. And and that kind of gives you kind of a head start about. You know what are their what's their impression of that person? Because if they don't like them, they're going to hang on well, to that.
3: Absolutely, I, you know I, my undergraduate degree was in persuasion, and ah, you're correct. way more likely to be persuaded by somebody that you like than mm-hmm. somebody you don't like. I mean, right. I mean, it's just it's a huge factor. And if they don't like your client in a criminal case, you are in serious trouble. And yep. and sometimes you have people that are that that are really hard to like. I don't do so much witness preparation as I do spending time talk I mean I don't prepare them for what to say how to say it on the stand but I do talk to them a great deal and ask them questions and 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 I play devil's advocate a lot and talk right. a lot about what's wrong with their case and listen to their explanations and and how they explain it and I I by the time we come to trial I have a pretty good idea how they're going to, you know, how they're going to act and react on the stand. And one of the worst things I hate people saying is, oh, I'll be way different when I get on the stand Mm because they're not, they they never are. They're the same as they are. They're going to be, and they're going to be worse because it's, it's stress and it's pressure. And, and the last thing that I, and if I put my client on the stand, it's a, it's a hail Mary last resort. I don't think I can win. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you know I mean, what, that's and the only
3: reason I put them up, or you know, you I've have got have a client to, that's so good that 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 I trust so much that I you know that I believe in so much that I just know that they'll be able to win the jury over.
1: His client's got to yeah, be like a lawyer himself, basically, right?
3: Well, and that's the the client I had the the Dateline uh, show tomorrow night. My client was a lawyer. He was also a SWAT <laughs> officer. <laughs> and you want to talk about a nerve-wracking trial? Try trying a, a trial when your client's a lawyer, and all his friends are some of the best trial lawyers in California, and they come and watch trial every day, and then after mm. trial every day, you know, you spend three hours critiquing what happened in court.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, and but they mm-hmm. but but they thought that you know everybody thought that it, that that it, I mean nobody 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 thought that I lost that trial. Nobody figured there was going to be a, uh, uh, a conviction in that case. And, uh,
1: Unbelievable.
3: And the jury okay, just got next, it wrong.
1: Next story is the uh, no indictment uh, for Eric Gardner. Let's take a look. Okay, so the breaking and, news uh, for the
6: moment is that the officer accused in the chokehold death of Eric Garner in New York City is not going to be indicted by a grand jury. The decision has already been made. This is just a couple minutes ago. And if you're feeling deja vu all over again, of course, this has uh, some of the similar underpinnings of the situation in Ferguson with Officer Darren Wilson and Mike Brown. And Darren Wilson obviously walked. He has since resigned from the police department, but uh, the protests are still ongoing. And obviously we haven't heard the last of that. And then, to then put this New York situation, you know, it's interesting, I've only, this literally happened about 10 minutes ago from when we're taping this, and just on a quick scroll of Twitter, I'm seeing something that you almost never see anymore, which is actually bipartisan. I'm seeing people on the left and people on the right, I'm seeing liberals and conservatives all kind of going, ah, maybe we didn't agree on the Ferguson one, maybe some of the facts we didn't all agree on, or the eyewitness testimony of, or what happened with Mike Brown and Officer Wilson... But this one seems a lot more straightforward. Uh, the chokehold, there's obviously video of it. The arrests, which was maybe for selling illegal cigarettes or something. There's a lot of people saying that these are different cases, that even the people, uh, mostly on the right, who were saying that uh, Darren Wilson getting off and not being indicted in that case was okay, there's more people already, again, this is only in a couple of minutes, that are already saying that something is not right here. Uh, you know, they say bad things happen in threes, so we just had... Regardless of whether you think Darren Wilson should have been indicted or not, something, uh, an innocent person died, you know what I mean? Or someone that should not have died, even if he had done something criminal. Someone that should not have been murdered died. Now we have it again just, you know, two weeks after or a week and a half after the decision on that one. Uh, And, you know, these are the types of things, uh, as I said, they say things happen in threes. Like, we got one more of these things. We're starting to get to critical mass with this. Uh, You know, a lot of people wanted to believe that we were post-racial after Obama uh, was elected, Uh, obviously that's not the case. I don't know that that ever is really the case ever, anywhere. Um, People have old, old hatreds. People, you know, things don't change as quickly. They change quick often, but not as quickly as like. Anyway, so this story just broke. I hope, again, calmer heads will prevail and that everyone's going to be okay and we'll, we'll wait out to see what happens next.
1: Dwayne, I want to start with you. Uh, was this a surprise, uh, uh, especially the one in New York City, given that they had uh, low-grade video evidence and this was an
3: illegal chokehold? Uh, jury's most but, positive, but it wasn't Ill- an illegal chokehold. He was under the arm on one side. That's the, That was a hold that they, they're trained to use. And the chokehold didn't kill him. as when he was on the ground. that What the officers did to him on the ground is what killed him you know the the, the guy that the, the reporter that just did that story pisses me off okay here he he is he is using he is using terms that are that are intended to to incite people and then at the end he goes boy i hope cooler heads prevail you know he should never have been murdered this cop murdered somebody but i hope cooler heads prevail i mean you know that that's what's wrong okay what the cops did to the man was wrong. Don't get me don't get me wrong. I'm not a I, I you know, I'm not a big fan of the police. Okay, I spend my life, you know, fighting with the you know, catching police lying, cheating and stealing and doing things wrong. That's my job. That's my job description. I police the police. Okay? I right. make sure they don't violate people's constitutional rights. That's what I do. But you know what? There's you know, nobody nobody's talking about Responsibility on everybody's side. If the man had just said, "Cool, man, let's go to let's go to court. I'll whip your ass in court," and you know he'd be alive. Okay. Now they didn't need six cops to take this guy down. Of course, you know if, if it had been me, I'm five foot four, 170 pounds. Okay. They probably wouldn't have brought five cops because I'm not you know six foot four, 350 pounds. Okay. But right. you know it's just you know people resist and these things happen you know the guy wasn't healthy to begin with okay and and you know it, it's it's half the it's it there there's a lot of blame to go along with everybody but for god's sakes let's don't incite riots let's don't whip the people into a frenzy okay cuz it's it's not going to do any good the police are necessary we need the police without the police i i don't have a job they're not out there arresting people. Of course, my family's out on the street too. So I really want the police out there, you know, you know, taking care of the bad guys. But, you know, they they, they have to make split-second calls all the time, you know, and there's a lot of cops that go home in boxes. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh and you know, and and I I wouldn't I don't want their job. I would never want to do their job. They're dealing with people that are that are you know, fighting against them every day all day long. You know and 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 sometimes they sometimes they cross the line, sometimes they make a mistake. I don't think it had anything to do with the man being black. I don't think it had and, anything to do with that
1: and Susan, if this was somebody else and not a cop, do you think they would have been indicted a and b overall, what's your opinion on the two no indictments?
2: Well, I have to agree that I don't think that this was a racial issue and and my you know i get I get really irritated when i the first thing it jumps out is it's got to be a racial issue. And, you know, I just see a cop that, had, like we were talking about, had to make a split-second decision, and he felt that, you know, this guy was much bigger than he was, and he was he had his arms inside the car. He was in there trying to, trying to kind of fend the guy off. He couldn't get him off him, and, and his split-second decision was, you know, heck, you know, this is serious. And then he quick, you know, grabbed his gun and he shot him. So I mean, what do you expect him to do when there's? I mean, that he carries a gun, he has the authority to do that, and, and even watching his video, when I watched him talk about the incident, he came across as a very sincere person. He was not deceptive. He was telling it sincerely what happened, and oh, Mister Wilson. Yeah.
1: Yeah. see exactly. yeah, You did see that video. What did you detect uh, when you saw that interview? I thought he was being straightforward too. I Is
2: thought that he what was you very got out of it? straightforward. He was very sincere. His uh, responses were thoughtful. There, there wasn't hesitation or pausing. Um, his uh, his terminology he used was very consistent. I know he was um, um, uh, being chastised for using words like. Correct, correct, correct. But that's police talk, you know. So, I mean, there, there's nothing deceptive in that. What would be deceptive is he would use no and then correct and using two different verb tenses. So then those are things that I would be looking for. But, no, I, I you know, I I just get really irritated when I, the first thing is you get sharpened out there and everybody else that this is a racial thing. And, you know, I, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it that way.
1: Uh, what about Dwayne did you see about that 12 year old kid who got shot who was by the park uh, allegedly had a fake pistol maybe he was pointing it I don't know the exact story did you see uh, and they're waiting for an indictment on that on Cleveland Uh, and if so yeah I mean
3: the the kid took the kid took the orange tip off a toy gun so that the gun would look real okay and and I'm sorry but you point a gun at a cop you're going to get shot I mean, you know, we need to teach our children that, you know, that cops carry guns and they will kill you if you if you threaten them. Okay, I mean, it, it should be like they should be, you know, you should treat cops like rattlesnakes, man. I mean, you know, give them a wide berth and a lot of respect, and you won't get bit. You know, and I mean, it's that simple. You know, and if the cops if the cops are going to harass you, then there are channels for dealing with that. But but wrestling with a cop or pointing a toy gun at a cop, or, you know, or, you know, bad mouthing a cop, I mean, you know, is is never a good idea. It's just not, you know, the, the you know, the, what we need to teach our children when the cops start to hassle them, they need to, they need to learn to say, I'm not going to answer any questions without my lawyer being present. And I want a lawyer before we go any further. Okay. And that will stop the cops from doing a lot of things. It's way more effective than trying to grab their gun. Mm
1: -hmm. And and these riots that that are out of control, uh, they have to stop for sure. And Ferguson, uh, Susan, you would agree, right? Yes. We're talking
2: about the the, the riots need to stop.
1: Oh, these riots, they're horrible in St. Louis. Oh,
2: they are horrible. Uh, Listen, I... I, re, you know, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, outside of Detroit. And if you remember when Martin Luther King was killed, and they, I lived in that era where there were riots ongoing and lots of racial riots. And I got to tell you, living that, um, you know, is is left a real impression with me for the rest of my life. And I just, it, it doesn't solve anything. And 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 I'll never forget, you know, as, as a kid growing up, going down to one of the local parks and a whole gang of Kids um, attacked my brother, and uh, and I got to tell you something. It was really pretty cool because it was a a black gang. But once we ran, once I escaped, my brother got the crap beat, beat, beat out of him. But one of the neighbors, a black man, came running out down to the park with a baseball bat because he didn't tolerate. Them. Now those were thugs, but they uh, you know, know what I'm saying. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just. <laughs> You know, yeah, they're they're just different mindsets.
1: Uh, no question about it. Uh, this next story is a, a little bit sad, and I want to get your guys' opinions on it. On the other side,
15: well, if you if well, first of all, uh, a lot of uh, Northerners and Yankees may not even know what a switch is. This is a switch. Uh, I brought this to show uh, when uh, if you're not just black kids, white kids know what a switch is. Your grandma tells you, "You go get me a switch," and you pull this twig off of a tree and they hit you on the legs with it. And whether it's right or wrong, I think people need to understand, this is a part of Southern culture. If you look at the polling data, a majority of all Americans, a majority of white Americans agree with corporal punishment, a majority of Southerners agree, uh, Midwesterners too. This is something that that goes on. uh, On the cosmopolitan coast, this is shocking to people. But there's paddling, there's whipping with belts, there's uh, switching with switches. Of uh, their spanking, and this and this is something that we need to have a debate about. I would say to anybody because i was I was corporally punished. kids today you don 't have to do that. Just take their iPod from them <laughs> take their ipad that 's enough you don 't have to do but, all that but, stuff anymore. Right. but, this but this you a, need to understand this is something that is a that is, is a major uh, a part of especially southern culture. And to say that this guy yeah. is completely a complete lunatic, he took it too far, but it does happen.
7: Okay, Dr. Taylor, go ahead. I, it, but this is a mistake also to characterize it as a black issue. The reality is spanking is an ineffective way to discipline children. And what happens is, yes, you may create fear, but if you keep spanking them, you will always create a lack, also create a lack of respect. And when you have a teenager who does not fear you nor respect you as they grow up, then you have a problem. Dr. Teller, everything you're saying makes sense, except that there are statistics, as Dan was just saying,
2: that 80% of preschool children in this country, 80%, have been spanked,
7: so not all of them are growing up to be aggressive or to have mood disorders or any of the things that we've heard come from spanking. Uh, but uh, but uh, spanking in and of itself is ineffective as discipline. But we're not talking; we're we're talking about abuse that leads to mood disorders and being more aggressive. And and some parents do not know the difference between picking up an object to discipline or spank your child versus a, a firm pat or removing their hand. When you pick up objects, that's abuse. When you intend and 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 want to inflict harm or pain to teach your child that is abuse. Very quickly, Judge, do you think that there is a cultural divide here—north, south, black, white? I think there. I think that it's
0: generational, Allison. I think people do what they have learned. I think they do That's what true. they have learned. I don't think it's necessary. I know white families who have been in my courtroom, I know rich families, I know poor families. My point is, I think it's whatever you have been taught is what you continue to do. Great point. But let me say this. It's very important.
15: Let me just just point out that the the polling data is is very clear that the majority of all racial groups in this country believe in corporal punishment. African Americans are about five to six points higher but So it's not just a black issue. It's an I American think. issue. We need to deal with it that way.
0: And that's exactly, and that was exactly the point I wanted to make. But let me just say, and I think that, Seriously. Doc, who I love and, and know, I think that this is a teachable moment. And I am sorry that this has come to this, but I think it's a teachable moment in this nation that lesson. we've got to have this conversation. And you can't discipline a child when you're angry. Yeah. I've said that to thousands of parents. Do not discipline when you're angry. All right,
1: Okay, Susan, I want to go to you first. What do you think about this whole discipline uh, and then them using the, the excuse, that this is how we were grown up, uh, et cetera, uh, that story with Adrian Peterson, of course, made uh, national headlines uh, in this year, 2014. What's your thoughts?
2: Uh, well, I do agree with it being generational because I know my mom used to whoop my butt, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the belt. <laughs> You know, I remember for days, but I'll tell you the one thing that left more of an impression on me was that I couldn't go roller skating on Saturday nights, which was my favorite time to go. So when she took that away, life ended, just like the iPad. But, you know, moving forward now here, um, I don't, you know, fortunately I haven't had any reason to have to spank my kids. But I'll tell you what, they've ticked me off long many times that I wanted to spank them. But I found myself... That taking away something that is the most important thing to them, uh, it's almost uh, like Lent. What do they need to take away? and <laughs> live without for a while.
1: Right, That's an iPad more. or something.
2: But uh, but Definitely. I'm not to chastise a parent that wants to whack their kid on the butt every now and then because sometimes the kid needs it. You know, but there. But the problem <laughs> is that we've got like this this guy that was the judge. I don't remember who he was.
1: Absolutely, Dwayne. Your thoughts.
3: Well, you know, I mean, it's, my dad's 87 years old, and I'm still a little afraid of him. You know, I don't know that I would challenge him today. And, and and I think he spanked me once, you know, because I think it's more about, you know, you should never, ever, ever, ever injure your child phys- with physicality. But I I think that your children need to be a little bit afraid of you, okay, especially boys. I think if boys aren't a little bit afraid of their dad, then uh, then then you're going to have problems. And I think there's a time in almost every boy's life when he physically challenges his father. Okay, my I challenged my father, my son challenged me. Nobody ever got hurt. Nobody ever left marks, you know, but there was some wrestling and tussling and and, you know, and and you and, and they just it's just. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know if, you know, I didn't grow up where I grew up where we kept score and there was competition and, you know, and you tried to win, you know, I didn't grow up in the thing where nobody keeps score and everybody gets a trophy, you know, and I think that, that, you know, it's just part of life. It's part of the, you know, the old dog, the young dog challenges the the old dog at times. But, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think corporal punishment is, is okay if it's done correctly. You know, but I don't know that. You know, I don't think that you, that child should never, ever, ever be injured from it. You know, with marks or bruises or anything like that. So. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, you agree with that too.
2: Yes, but I'm not a. I am not I do not believe in corporal punishment, but I'm not opposed to punishing your kids. I think that you made a very good point when it talks about you know the the dad the son dynamic. I think that makes more sense. But when you've got a father that might be disciplining their children i don't think that that's probably a good way a setting the presence okay for men to hit women um and that's never okay under any circumstances so i think if, if the child's going to be spanked it should be something that maybe mom needs to do rather than dad just because they I, have absolutely
3: i'd never spank it i would never spank a female child ever yeah in, in, under I any mean, circumstance
2: Listen, I know my ex-husband had a tough time with his his son, and they've gone, you know, they squared off a couple of times, <laughs> and that was enough mm-hmm. for them to say, "Hey, you know, cool it. You know where your boundaries are," because you know, it's just the testosterone that's going on here. And you guys, you got to tell your kid. It, Go ahead. I'm sorry. It
3: is, and, and the kid has just got to understand, you know. And you got in, you got to get to them when they're young enough before they grow up and get too big and strong.
2: Mm-hmm.
11: Okay
3: you know or take four years of wrestling or something you know you, you know you've got to uh, you know you've got to impress upon them that you, they they just they just need to have that little bit of, that little thing in the back of their mind that says man I really don't want to mess with the old man you know
2: right. <laughs> but you know here here's the problem though here's where it's very difficult is that e- you know, kids today, they're taught in school that, you know, parents are never supposed to spank them, hit them. I mean, these kids today, you touch me, I'm calling the police or I'm calling DCF, <laughs> you know? Yeah, my and, step
3: my stepson said that, and I pulled him aside in the corner, and I said, I'm a criminal defense attorney. If the police show <laughs> up, I know what to say, And if you, and if the police show up here, you're going to jail. So here's the yeah. phone. Dial it unbelievable
1: you know i had richard herman and tom mesero both uh separately and i both and i told them both uh Dwayne about your statement that they shouldn't have retried charity because of the four holdouts there wasn't just one and tom yeah. mesero instrumentally agreed with you wholeheartedly uh as did richard herman um Talk a little bit about that and uh, what you were telling me that just uh, the fact that there were four that Mr. Martinez should have just let
3: it be. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Killing people for killing people makes absolutely no no sense, number one. Number two, the death penalty is more about vengeance than it is about justice. Okay? I mean, that's, that's all it's about is vengeance. Okay? And right. there are angry people that want to see somebody die. Okay, well, the jury sat through the whole trial, every day of it. The the, the 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 prosecution won probably almost every day of that six-month trial. I mean, the prosecution kicked the defense up one side and down the other in that trial, and it wasn't hard because Jody gave them tons of ammunition to do it with. Okay, and after all that, the best they could get is eight to four, you mm-hmm. know, for death penalty if there was one goofball holdout, you know, then you retry right. it, you know. But there, but there was four, okay, you know. And and there's so much there's so much prosecutorial misconduct coming out in that case right now
1: mm-hmm.
3: that that I Judge Stevens should throw the death penalty out. I mean this thing this thing well this thing's there's going to be you know th- they're going to keep this is the appeal lawyers full employment act. I mean, this thing's going to be in the Court of Appeals for for 20 years, and there's going to be hundreds oh, yeah. of decisions come out of this thing.
1: And uh, Susan, your thoughts, uh, Mr. Tom Miserell thought that you know, the, the uh, prosecutor might have had Vigo getting autographed and whatnot. Uh, that's why he decided to retry it in some people's opinion. Richard also, Mr. Herman. What is your thoughts? on uh, retrying uh, Jody again. I think it's still in progress. Uh, not getting the exposure of the first trial, obviously, but uh, definitely still yeah. in trial. What's your thoughts?
2: Well, when you're thinking about just the cost of it all, I mean, I think that the state would really need to really consider it. Like, I think there's only, what, two people that have ever been on the two women ever ever on the death penalty there in Arizona. I mean, the statistics are against them, getting the death penalty, number one. Number two is, you know, in in this is just my own personal opinion and most uh, people out there don't realize how much money it costs to keep somebody on death row versus just giving them life for Jody life is not going outside the, those those uh bar those bars and looking into the into the real world and seeing sunlight again that's really death to her so you know when i'm looking at the whole dynamic and then there there has been several prosecutorial you know issues here and it's you know some real serious issues with jurors. You know, I can't see how this thing is not going to get thrown out at some point in time, um, or this you know the state's got to drop it or something. I just don't see it going all the way, and I don't yeah. see her getting the death penalty. I just don't. I e- cannot even if she gets
3: it. the death penalty. Even if she she'll gets the death get penalty, there. she will never be get. She will never no. be put to death. I agree. Too many appeal issues.
2: So when you talk about really? whether it's ego or not, I think that um, it, it's a combination of ego and he feels he's got to go ahead and do it because he's got to, you know, have justice for the family. Just take them through, just kind of with the Trayvon Martin case um, here. I mean, the state never really wanted to try it, but this is a little bit different case, but they did it anyway, so they just had the trial. They had to, and the family well, And, and wanted I think it, this so is got to do
3: I think, I think this is victim-driven also. I think Juan Martinez really wants to do it. But I also mm-hmm. think that, see, it's victim-driven. But if if you got a good prosecutor, they can sit them people down, and talk the talk the victims through, you know, putting an end to this thing, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. But
3: but yeah. you know, but now the victims are whipped into a deal where they to not get the death penalty is to lose. Yeah. You know.
7: Yeah. And
3: uh, and 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 so it's going to be, and you know what, and you know what, the victims are never going to win. Until they until they have some sort of forgiveness in their heart for what happened or whatever, I mean mm-hmm. they're they're never going to win. They're never going to they're never going to feel good about this. Never, you know. And, and and then and then and think about this: the death penalty. She gets the death penalty. Okay, her. You know, there's going to be a dozens of last minute reprieves for her. You mm-hmm. know, and so the victims are all on their edge, waiting to go watch Jody get executed and. Boom, and then it's postponed for another three months, and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a it's a bigger nightmare for the victims than it is anybody else.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: Susan, I remember last year we spoke about this, and you said that Travis wasn't a perfect angel, right? In your opinion, you know, he, should, he didn't deserve to die, obviously, but the fact that he kept saying, getting his booty call, uh, Aphrodite Jones also said that to me, uh, you know that. She was so mentally fucked up that you know, <laughs> from being deceived by. Uh, what's your opinion? What were you telling me?
5: Uh, yeah, in terms I, of- I agree with you.
2: You know, when I when I think of Travis, he was not a perfect angel. Um, I mean, he played right into the whole sexual fantasy stuff. He loved it. He used her. Um, she let him use her. Use uh, use herself. I mean, it was it was just a very toxic sexual relationship. And he was, you know, intoxicated by it. You know, he was a kind of guy that, you know, was told that he, he couldn't have sex until he got married. And I think when you tell people they can't do something until they're married, what do they, it just increases those cravings that much more. And she was the, and she was, he was intoxicated by her. And she knew that she was the one that kind of held on to that, um, secret you know like potion and she used it and she knew exactly how she'd be able to get his attention so but at the same time I mean he did say some we heard it It wasn't just that's how I feel uh you know I mean I've heard the videos myself the things that he called her um Yeah, yeah so I mean he was very he was very had a very depraved mind and he and so I think that he just drove her nuts she was the wrong personality she had a very addictive personality and she and you know she's a uh, very um uh what do i call it, passive aggressive and you know you get to yes. a certain point where she was very jealous and she just cracked and she just was if nobody can have him i mean if, if she if he wants that girl i'm going to make sure that he is not going on that trip and i'm going to do everything to make sure that doesn't happen so, yeah and
3: that's second degree murder, and that's what they should've went with yeah yeah absolutely okay, you know, i I'll i had a custody, i had a custody I had a custody, of, I had a custody evaluator once tell me that that tens very rarely hook up with ones meaning if if one of them's really screwed up, they're probably both screwed up
2: mhm, yeah, very good point,
1: no question about it. Very big trial that happened this year. Oscar Pistorius, uh, let's listen to this and uh, we'll go on the other side.
16: In the court affidavit signed on February 19th, 2013, Pistorius said he was watching television in bed, while Riva Steenkamp practiced yoga after a quiet dinner together. The couple fell asleep sometime after 10pm. Pistorius awoke a few hours later. He brought a fan inside the bedroom and was closing the balcony doors when he heard noises from the bathroom. Pistorius feared an intruder had entered. He grabbed his 9 millimeter Parabellum from underneath his bed and headed to the bathroom. He shouted at the intruder and yelled at Steenkamp to call the police. Pistorius saw that the bathroom windows were open and heard movement inside the toilet room. He was too scared to switch the light on. He fired four shots at the toilet room door. He screamed for Steenkamp again but there was no response. He then moved backwards out of the bathroom. He reached the bedroom and found Steenkamp was not in bed. Pistorius returned to the bathroom and called Steenkamp's name. He tried to enter the toilet room, but it had been locked. He returned to the bedroom, opened the balcony doors and screamed for help. Pistorius put on his prosthetic limbs, ran back to the bathroom and tried to kick the toilet door open. The lights were switched on at this point. He then grabbed a cricket bat from the bedroom and smashed the toilet door. A panel broke off and Pistorius found a key on the floor. He used it to open the door. Steenkamp was slumped over on the toilet. Pistorius carried his girlfriend out of the bathroom and phoned property manager Johan Stander to call an ambulance.
13: Okay, Dwayne. E N C A dot com. Dwayne
1: Cates, uh, do you think the judge got the verdict right uh, with the Gillam manslaughter?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it was a really strange story, and and it was it was really kind of hard to believe some of the things that they were claiming and you know I, and you know and i think he got it right and i think the punishment kind of fit the crime and i think you know i think that's one of those cases that turned out probably probably like it should have i mean the the, the neighbor hearing the screams before the shots i mean things like that seemed to just really kind of you know tread it kind of tipped it over
1: Susan, what was your thoughts on this long trial uh, based out of South Africa with one judge, uh, a very different style? Uh, what was your interpretation of this uh, event?
2: Well, first of all, I thought it was an unbelievable story. And what I mean by that yes. is it was unbelievable. <laughs> because <Yes. laughs> listening to that story and his incredible detail and the his emotional responses were not congruent um, and timely. Uh, you know, everything was off. So, for me in, in deception detection, I, clearly there were many um, areas I could have shot holes through the, his story. Uh, one of the things I was concerned about was the extraordinary um, detail, especially when you are in a very feared time. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, unless somebody has gone through a cognitive interview where you're kind of re- retracting a uh, stored information when you've gone through trauma, um, are you able to remember so many details? But when somebody gives you lots of details and irrelevant information, that's a real concern for me. And again, I'm going to go back to we had one judge, and when you and she's going based on the facts of the case, but she also does she really believe in, is he a credible witness and is the story credible? And I don't think that she was able to discern that. Um, I think she wanted to believe that um, it was not intentional. So I think that, you know, a compromise verdict of um, manslaughter was fitting.
1: Yes. Yeah, a compromise verdict is definitely where it went and uh, Dwayne uh, what do you think of the way they do things over there uh in South Africa much different than the US one judge uh they refer to her as my lady uh what's your thoughts on how they run things out there in South Africa
3: you know i think that if you have if you have proper judges and you have a couple citizens that that are there you know with them I don't think it's necessarily a bad, a bad thing. I mean, juries, juries, juries do some really strange things. That case that I have on Dateline, the jury thought that beyond a reasonable doubt meant more likely than not. Mm-hmm. After I spent a half hour with the PowerPoint presentation explaining to him what beyond a reasonable doubt meant. Mm-hmm. OK, I mean, they, they said they had to find him guilty of homicide because I didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was a suicide okay i mean you know they're just they just sometimes don't understand complex legal you know it's hard to explain to somebody that even if you're pretty sure my guy did it and and it really looks like my guy did it you could still find him not guilty because they didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it okay they they you know they don't they don't apply the the, the proper burdens they don't apply the you know, and it's, 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 it's a, it's a struggle to, you know, to, you got to find a balance of trying to explain to a jury, but, but you don't want to insult them and break it down to get it down to two elementary of a level. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's really hard to get eight or 12 people to figure out what's going on. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. you know, and, and it's, in this case, you know, if I had tried this case to the judge, I would have won, and the judge would have come back in five minutes with a ruling. But you know, a jury was out six days and came up with the wrong answer.
1: Yeah, yeah, you would you know, definitely based see on the a wrong the US, go, go a different way. O.J. Simpson, in particular, I think would have went a different way if that was just a judge with the clear facts uh, that they had to work with. This is the biggest story, and it's going on. I think the number, the magic number is 25. And, Susan, I want you to listen to this alleged victim and tell me if you think uh, she's credible, and let's talk on the other so side. So you said that he so,
10: drugged and assaulted you. You said multiple times, Yes. right? You were a, teenage, you were teen, a teenager, an yes. aspiring actress. What do you believe happened?
9: Well... There were several occasions that I would, I woke up uh, out of a very confused state, um, not in my clothes. There was an occasion at his brownstone in New York City where I had gone for dinner and um, had one glass of wine with dinner. There were staffers there. The house was mingling with people. And before I knew it, I was with my head over the toilet, throwing up. And he was holding my hair out of my face while I threw up. And I was in a white t-shirt and my panties. And he was looming over me in a white robe.
10: and so and so you were at his house at a dinner party, or were you there to be with him? I
9: was there alone, yeah. and he had been mentoring me and grooming me. Mm-hmm. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and when I was 17, my agent introduced me to him mm-hmm. to groom me, to mentor me, to get me ready for show business, and part of that was bringing me to New York City.
10: Did he ever make advances towards you when you weren't, because you believed that you were drugged, when you weren't drugged, did he make advances towards you?
9: It was a very um controlling and manipulative environment. It was very um very controlled, very isolated and uh there were twisted things, there were there were telltale signs. But nothing overt. Uh there was something pretty overt in Reno, Nevada. Mm-hmm. But by that time, um I was very much under control and under his thumb. And I don't recall that there was there were drugs involved in that. So after the, in after the
10: initial time, you've spent, you said Reno, Nevada. You also went to, I believe, Atlantic City. Yeah. And you put yourself in a position to be close to him again. What, was that naivete? Was that youth? Why would you do that?
9: I would say that is, it's so many different things. Victims of sexual assault go through so many different things. Mm-hmm. I was young. I was in New York City. He and my agent were subsidizing my housing and my acting classes, and my job was to focus on acting, do what I was told, stay on the straight and narrow and When things started to happen with him mm-hmm. i couldn 't go to my agent. I was terrified of her, and I was terrified of him, and he would say things if I started to ask questions or I would get you know the confusion from the drugs and i 'd be asking questions he 'd say, Well, you were drunk mm-hmm. and I would say well i can't i can 't I wasn't drunk, but I can't let my agent know I was, you know, in that position. She, I'm supposed to be working so hard do you think in it, New York. What,
10: how do you think he drugged you? Do you, you have any idea? No?
9: I never saw any drugs, but I wo- would wake up um, completely confused, half-dressed, and knowing that my body had been touched without my permission.
10: You have struggled over the years to have your allegations taken seriously yeah. and it wasn't until a comedian recently talked about it and this is you know sometime later almost 30 years later. Actually no
9: actually no I've been speaking out publicly and trying to have the story um, believed and heard since 2004. Do you actually. think it's
10: been taken seriously enough?
9: It's starting to I'm really glad now it's it's a relief to know that the critical masses are starting to finally pay attention it's been a long hard lonely dark road.
10: You've never taken legal action though.
9: I didn't. No, I, I didn't. And I didn't. Uh, my, Why didn't I? Well, I tried. I told my agent one time. She did not believe me. Um, I, my, a friend of mine in 89 took me to an attorney. He laughed me out of the office. At that point, nobody would believe me. He was, he was Dr. Huxtable. He was America's dad. Everybody loved him. loved him. I loved him. I wanted him to be my dad. And nobody believed me. And I just, I was so broken down at that point and had gone through so much of having this, my mind completely manipulated. I just, when I got kicked out of New York City, they put me back to Denver with the clothes on my back. My things got locked in the apartment. I had to sue to get my things back. I regrouped, came back to New York, and I just said, I just have to put this away. I have to just get on with my life.
10: Cosby, through his attorney's, repeatedly denied sexually assaulting anyone now this is according to the washington post a representative for bill cosby did not return multiple calls and emails from washington post staff for washington post staff or uh, comments on barber's op-ed today we spoke to a representative of bill cosby's who didn't want to address the resurfacing of the allegations
1: Okay, Susan, two things. Uh, First of all, do you find this lady that you just heard credible, A, and B, or what do you think of this whole gigantic story that blew
2: up this year? I think it's a credible story. Um, When I'm listening to her, again, her responses are very thoughtful. I I feel that when she said that he or she was – He was grooming her for this position. Well, he was not only grooming her for the position, he was actually grooming her as a sexual predator. And when she gave very visual graphics, um, that's what we call visually remembered, and and she vividly remembered certain aspects of it, but she never really said that he sexually abused her because she doesn't remember that. She just knows at the aftermath, you know, how she was left and felt. And a woman knows... What that feels like if your body just feels differently, so I've uh, the whole story when you you've got twenty different people coming forward, uh more and more coming out, similar stories being drugged. I think that he found an m o that worked, and um he uses power and influence and and here's the thing is that I would really caution people it's it you know when you're looking at sexual predators today's sexual predators, even this guy you know he's apparently um Started this a long time ago, but they don't look like sexual predators. They are people right. that they trust, and that's their persona, their their um, it's their personality and their charisma, and, their, and, and they build trust with people. And that's what I, you know, it's very scary because they can be they can be like the Bill Cosby's, and they can be even police officers or teachers or people that are next door neighbors, people that you entrust. So here's the thing. A narcissist is someone that you would invite them into your home within 30 seconds of meeting them, and that's Bill Cosby.
1: Wow, and uh, Dwayne, have you ever ever seen so many people come out and uh, having, how would, you know, if you were representing Mr. Cosby, first of all, what would you do? Uh, Would you tell him to issue a statement? Uh, How would you go about this? And what's your personal feelings on this? uh, Well, I mean, you know, you
3: you know i i would craft a statement i would craft a statement to put out there but you know one thing you have to understand with so many people coming forward there's going to be some of them that that are just making it up you know right. there are going to be some okay even if even if assuming what what some of them are saying are true you know because because it's it's a money it's a money train you know and and again that's you know that's going to be part of the defense is you know that that they're just after money and the ones that are, the ones that are just after money could ruin it for the ones that that really deserve to real have ones. justice the the real right. ones and and when you get a pool where some are real and some are not then you know I, you know i don't know on statute limitations where 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 these acts took place if there can be criminal charges okay i don't know if statute limitations if they can if they can bring civil lawsuits you know the maybe it's get, and most likely the best they're going to be able to do is ruin his career but you know bill Cosby probably has enough money in the bank that he doesn't really have to uh that he really doesn't have to have a career you know and if i was his attorney yeah but i his would, legacy is I, would uh, I would yeah I, I would you know and if i was his attorney i would tell him to you know you disappear into the background you know and stay out of the public eye and and uh, these things blow over Right. but we're not he, talking. He's got put one, up, two, three. He's got to get. We're talking you know,
1: twenty-five women that we got uh, on, according to this. Just, just, just the accusation though has caused his legacy, Susan. Don't you think? Well, and, I mean, and that's, the pro- mm-hmm. that's the problem. That's the problem
3: with these kind of crimes. Is that is that is that you can ruin people with just an accusation? I've had I've had I've had people that I've gotten out, out of jail. I've got the charges dismissed because they were innocent, but they spent nine months in jail being called a child molester. When they got out, they were still considered by everybody in their neighborhood as a child molester. And I mean, it ruined their lives. Just the accusation that, you know, it doesn't yeah, you matter that they didn't case, get right? convicted.
1: You, you got somebody acquitted. That was, uh,
3: I've had well, two, I've had two or three.
1: Yes. And, uh, Anything that was uh, seemingly hard that looked like the evidence was overwhelming, or was it just a reasonable doubt that
3: could? Oh, no. I mean, uh, the the prosecution actually dropped the cases a week before trial because you know one of them, we got the CPS records, and one of the girls admitted that the two girls cooked up the story because they were pissed off at this guy to punish him. Mm -hmm. I mean, the state had those records. For years, they disclosed them to me two weeks before trial. They dismissed the case a week before trial. Mm -hmm. You know, and my client, I was kind of mean to him because he had really nice long hair. And I told him he had to cut his hair for trial. (laughs) And then when I found out they were going to dismiss the charges, I went into the jail and I said, listen, I've got some really, really bad news for you. And he goes, oh, my God, what's going on? I go, it's bad. Sit down. He sits down and I go, you cut your hair for nothing. (laughs) <laughs> and he looked at me. He goes, he goes. What are you talking about? I go. Your charges are dismissed. You're getting out tomorrow. They, you cut your hair for nothing. And he literally fell to the floor and weeped. And when they let him out of jail, he took off walking. And he just kept walking. He walked till his feet bled. He said because the it, the sunshine felt so good. He hadn't been out in the sunshine in nine months. And he walked till his wow. feet bled. And then he sat down and called his family to come get him. I mean, you know, but that's the kind of stuff that accusations well, the, do. To there people.
2: are, there are, and I've had a lot of sexual battery cases too. And you know, there's issues with parental alienation. There's family dynamics. There's one that that's uh, brainwashing one of their kids. They, you know, in divorce divorce uh, situations. I mean, that does happen. And uh, but in this yeah. case, I think this is different because it's not one person or maybe one family member or someone close to them. That and the pattern is this. Very, it's just, it's all this, the same. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I and I agree with you. Some of them are going to be jumping on board and they're saying, yes, you know, this happened to me too, and then, you know, then another one comes forward. But, you know, all 20 of them can't be lying. There's There's always truth in what everyone is saying. It doesn't mean that it's fully the truth, but there is truth to it. Um, but I I don't know because they're so long ago. I think that there were some criminal charges that were dropped. At, I thought I saw yes um, because it was yes. because it it's was, one it was too far.
1: There was one that happened in 08 or 07 and the LA prosecutor uh, declined to uh, charge a then teen girl that just came mm-hmm. forward. Uh, he was hanging out in the Hugh Hefner mansion. Uh, with uh, a 17-year-old then. But let me ask you a more important um, Susan. A guy like Bill Cosby could probably get beautiful women like that. Why do you think that he had to do this sick routine with the uh, drink and, and all that? I'm sure he could get women. I mean, you know,
2: well, he an I don't think that's That's not it. I think it's... Um... First of all, it's a criminal mind, uh, a sexual, sexual depraved individual that loves power and control over other people. And, you know, psychologically, when we're looking at it, the, you know, the first time that they do it, it might be something they may have felt a little bit guilty about, but then, then it feels that hunger and that need for more and more and more. And they become more of an, a serial offender. And uh, and and eventually, you know, their thoughts that that you know being around younger people. And remember, you know, a lot of his his um, programs were with young children. He had a love for younger children, and and it may be displaced over time. And then, you know, after a while, they start to act on those those thoughts and those feelings. But you know, and he knew that his persuasion would be that nobody would believe because he's like, almost like Mr. Rogers, you know, and every he's like a sweetheart for years. People loved him, and he was, he had good, clean fun. It wasn't nasty, you know, jokes and stuff. And so no one would have suspected him. But it's what what I'm really trying to tell, and I hope people out there listening, it's people you wouldn't suspect. And I've seen this over and over again, like even when you look at Jerry Sandusky. They put themselves in places deliberately. Yes. This is not all. I don't want to say this that you know teachers and all this. They put themselves in there on purpose. But but there are those people that know that if they fit into society, if they take those types of positions where they're around children, there it's a, uh, a fueling ground for them to groom these individuals over years and uh, and uh, abuse them. It's a sex, they're sexually depraved, they're sexually depraved minds. That's what they have. And I just don't think yeah, that they can be rehabilitated. I just don't, I'm, I'm not, I'll be the first one to tell you. I'd rather give someone that has offended someone sexually the death penalty over someone that may have even killed somebody physically. Because I think that when they, when they harm children, uh, they've killed them and they've got to suffer for years of their, from their abuse. So, that's how strongly I I feel about child sexual abuse. And, and I've I, you know, I've taken a lot Sianowicz. of breathing in this. Pardon me.
1: Um, I asked this to Stacey Hanowitz, and I'll ask you, um, what do you think of his wife? Uh, do you think she's in denial? Do you think she questions it? Do you think? What do you think about the situation? Well,
2: she doesn't want to believe him. In um, the same time, it's going to make her look like a fool that she didn't see it. And also, the other thing is, is that if she, you know, she's got to be on her, her, I don't think that she knew anything, Never what. I think that she's completely oblivious to it. I think he's a pretty good persuader when it's out from underneath her. And she believes in her husband. But, of course, she's going to support, support him because that's not the person that she knows. But there's a lot of people that live double lives that, you know... They're one way at home, and then they're leaving, and they're they're completely the opposite. of serial killers are living with other women and married of all other people. It's not a it's it's a, a strange phenomenon, but there's, it's not uncommon. I mean, we've seen this stuff happen before. But think about if her, if it were her, if she, you know, it almost kind of reflects on her, like. were you so stupid you didn't see it? It's almost kind of like Sandusky's wife. Like, what do you mean you didn't know it was happening? I mean, for God's sake, he was going down in the basement talking to little boys all the time. You know, why wouldn't you have known? How could you have not known? And I think that they don't want to see it. They don't want to believe it. They don't believe it's truly happening. They've talked themselves out of it.
1: I totally agree with you. And uh, that probably would be the biggest story. And, uh, more women keep coming out every single day. It gets the papers uh, plenty of room, but it is sad. Uh, If it's not true, some of the people that came forward, if it is true, whatever the case is, it's sad because Bill Cosby was a beloved figure, I'm sure for Mm you, I'm sure for everybody that's listening. So uh, it's a very sad story. But uh, let me remind the folks that tomorrow on Dateline on the NBC network, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne, wanna tell them about your story that's gonna be airing tomorrow before we uh close
3: out. Yeah, tomorrow night it's the uh it, there was it's a homicide case that w- that occurred here in Arizona where a uh, SWAT officer that became a lawyer uh came to visit his family, his stepdaughter and her husband and uh and uh and the husband the the stepdaughter's husband ended up dead on the floor with a with his gun in his hand. They were he, my client was in a blackout, remembers absolutely nothing of it, and uh, and uh, was charged with second degree murder, and we had a trial. Very interesting hmm. story.
7: I'll be watching. No.
1: Nope. Yes, and Susan, people uh, love body language. i are getting a lot of feedback from the videos and stuff like that. Um, if they want to uh, learn, um, is there a way of getting a hold of you? Sure, they can just go
2: on my website. Yeah, my website's my name, com, And um, so you'll see a lot of videos on there and trial work that I've done. And and I've done a lot of, recently, a tremendous amount of celebrity work. So you can look and find out whether Angelina Jolie is having an affair or not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, guys, this was an excellent show. I want to thank Dwayne Cates. And uh, Miss Susan Cosbey. Uh, this is one of the better uh, shows that I had all year, and it was good going over the biggest story. I think the Cosby one, probably by interest, was the biggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What about you, sir? What about you, uh,
3: Dwayne? What do you think was the well, biggest? story? You know, I, I, I think it's Go a, ahead. yeah, I I think it's a big story, and I think it's just it's going to get bigger before it before it ends.
2: I and think it's so- going to be a big story too. Same thing. It's, it's, it's a big story because it, you know, the, the sad thing about it is it makes people feel like who can I trust? And I think that you know, gosh, he's a guy that I loved and and, and watched for years, and I laughed with his videos and his lots of TV shows, and it's just a shock that people just wouldn't have expected. And I think that's what's going to make people tune in, and want to pay attention.
1: No question. Okay, thank you guys. We will speak to you soon. And uh here on King George Radio, we will speak to you next year. Thank you Susan. Thank you Dwayne. You're welcome. We will speak we will speak to you soon.
2: Okay. Take care everybody. Thank Bye-bye. Thank
3: you. Bye.